Okay, so before we get started, I need to tell you that probably this would be, if we were having a television show, this would be an announcement at the bottom. We now leave your regularly scheduled and go to something else. I am not going to be preaching on the passage that Jeff read today. Um, I'm going to touch on it very briefly, but I will be back to it next week. And it'll make sense as we go. So you can be in Matthew 19. Uh, We are going to start there, but we are going to move around because the Lord put something else on my heart this week. So I want to talk about evil today. I want to talk about unspeakable acts of evil. I want to talk about small acts of evil. I want to talk about how evil makes us feel violated when it's done to us, no matter how big or whether it affected us directly. There are huge acts of evil that we are all familiar with. For a previous generation, it was Pearl Harbor, the sneak attack by the Japanese nation that led us into war more fully and took 3,000 lives. For many of us, it's 9-11, September 11th. Waking up on that Tuesday morning, like any other Tuesday morning, to hear of the terrible encounters in New York and in D.C. and in a field in Pennsylvania. Now, these are atrocities. Natural disasters or tragedies, these are atrocities. The loss of life is staggering. Al Mohler on Monday morning wrote, it seems the virtually once in every generation There comes some kind of just inescapable, horrifying reminder of the reality of human sin and evil, and the evil of which humans are capable of. Last week, October 7th, on Saturday, Hamas launched a sneak attack into Israel. Some 15,000 murdering Hamas terrorists began rampaging all over the countryside. Those are the huge acts. Now, in our lives, people have done evil to us individually. Some of us have experienced parents who abuse, parents who neglect. Some of us have experienced family members and friends and have gone with them through horrendous things, like dealing with someone being murdered, suicide, rape, theft, And on and on it goes. When evil is done to us, there is a sense of violation. There is a sense of, I have been violated. And if we're honest, some part of us doesn't come back the same when evil is done to us. When evil is done to us, we begin asking questions. We ask why questions. We ask meaning questions. We ask how long. And at that moment, doubts and despair are at the door. In these moments, we can feel that God is far off. He's a long ways away. We can feel distant from him. This leads us to even more doubts. Does he have a plan? Is he in control? We ask the question, is God good? This is the question we're going to look at today. Because of what's happened to me, what's happened to you, what's happening in our world, does not look anything like good. Our world has been rocked. 
Now, especially if you're here today and you believe that because you believe in Jesus Christ, everything is supposed to go good with you, that's going to really rock your world. As if you're a Christian and automatically good stuff happens to you. As a matter of fact, the Bible does not speak good about that theology, that faulty theology. Sadly, in our churches, we kind of play the role of Job's friends. I'm not sure that they were good friends, but they were friends. And we see someone who suffered an evil, and we would say, ah, you didn't have enough faith. You need to believe more. So we take the evil that a person has done, and we blame it on the victim. Sometimes we also will say something like, well, you must have done something bad. And that's true. We've all done bad things. But that, again, is taking the blame for the evil and putting it on the person that it was perpetrated on. As a matter of fact, people will say, well, you're being punished for something. But praise be to God that if we're in Christ, Christ took our punishment. Yes, there's repercussions for sin, but our punishment has been dealt with. So this is this, these in-the-church ways of dealing with evil, unfortunately, are evil themselves because they pervert the good news. So if I'm not getting punished for evil, the evil that done to me, I'm not, getting, I'm not getting dished out on me because of a lack of faith, why do evil things happen to God's children? Why do evil things happen to anyone, especially those who are innocent? Why? Why do children die at the hands of men? We scream this. We go, Lord, why? Why are you doing this? And we're in good company. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So we arrive at our passage this week. And it would be really easy just to go right into the rich young ruler and deal with that. But there is a phrase in our passage today that we must address in light of what has happened in the last week. So let's look at it. Verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? In verse 17, Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is one who is good. Mark helps us understand this better. Mark's recounting of it says, No one is good except God alone. So we can just say that, and we can all agree with that, right? Yep, God's good. Let's move on to the rich young ruler. Let's talk about riches. But we can't move past this, not today. The Lord wouldn't let me move past this this week. So I want to spend some time here and go, is God good when children are murdered? Is God good when people are hanging out with their family and someone busts down the door and chops their heads off? Is God good when terrorists hide behind innocent women and children and those women and children die? The Bible's very clear on this. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 1 John 1, 15, this is the message we've heard 
from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in them there is no darkness at all. Translation, he is good. The New Testament, the Old Testament support this. God is good. So we can't walk past this. One author writes, with the fact that we look at the reality of this kind of evil, we will be absolutely destroyed and depressed beyond belief except for the fact that we know God is good. But how do we know that? Do we know that? Is it just something we say? Have we thought about this in light of what's going on? So we are going to answer this question today. Is God good? So as you all know, Israel was attacked last Saturday. The fighting still is going on. Now Israel is retaliating and attacking Gaza, trying to stop Hamas. Let's do some numbers here so we kind of understand what this means for the nation of Israel. Not because they hold any special place over anything else, but because this is happening now and I want us to see it so that when it happens here, we will understand how to deal with evil. This is a world-changing event for the nation of Israel. Pearl Harbor, 3,000 people died. 9-11, about 3,000 people died. Yes, we fought wars after both of those events. Let's talk about what this means for Israel. 1,300 civilians lost their lives in the sneak attack. Every single life lost is a tragedy, but this is an atrocity. These numbers are crazy. 1,300 people. Let me put it to you this way. On 9-11, there were 285 million Americans in, in the United States. Right now, Israel's population is 9.7 million. To grasp what their 9-11 now, this October 7th attack, looks like, we would have to take 9-11 and multiply it by a huge number. We would have to have 35,000 people die on 9-11 to equal the percentage of people that died in Israel this week. Translated that tonight to 2023 numbers, that's 45,000 people dying immediately. Numbers are hard. I get that. So let me put it into a way that you can understand. 35,000 people is how many people can fit in Reeser Stadium, which is where the Oregon State Beavers play. About 50,000 people is how many can fit in Autzen Stadium, where the Ducks play. Imagine a stadium, every single seat, the person is dead, men, women, and children. And this is not from a building collapsing. This is not from an explosion. This is because somebody went up and killed every single one of them. That's a crazy thing to think about, that many people dying. A stadium full of people raped, murdered, heads cut off. This is terrible. This is evil. 1,300 people dead, 1,500 terrorists, 900 Palestinians. Now, we get that there's going to be fighting and people are going to die on either side, but what about the women and children? One story that came out on Monday was they found 40 children that had been murdered. And I have to say, I am depressed beyond belief that our culture just moved on past that. Forty children were butchered because they were from the wrong brother, the wrong son of Abraham. 
How terrible is that? How bad is it that our consciences are so seared in our culture that we go from babies being killed to what is Taylor Swift doing? How can we move on from something so horrible and move to something so trivial? This is a big issue. And yes, it's on the other side of the world. And yes, you know what? Maybe some of you know some Israel, people who live in Israel. We have friends there. You have family that maybe has traveled there. You've maybe been there. Other side of the world. But do you honestly think that evil's going to just stay there? There's evil right around us now. Everybody in this room is going to have someone do something evil to you. God forbid that it be as bad as what Israel's experiencing. So what do we do with this? How do we get our minds wrapped around this? Well, our world has no answers, none at all. Our world's view is they don't believe in a God. And so they have no way of saying that this is evil. They borrow that word from Christianity. The word evil, the concept of evil is stolen from Christianity. And they put it out there. I've even heard people that are the most devout atheists go, this was evil. But their worldview doesn't let them believe that. They believe in the consensus makes it right. Or if I feel it inside, it makes it right. There is no standard of right and wrong. They can't get their minds around it. Ironically, they run to the fact that it's evil, but they have no way of dealing with the evil. C.S. Lewis said this. It's a little bit longer quote, but I think it's very important. My argument against God was that the universe was cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten the idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has an idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was a part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction to it? Of course... I could have been given my idea of justice by saying it was my private idea. But if that's the case, my argument against God collapses. For the argument that the world is unjust was just simply my fancy. Thus, in, every very, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely justice, was full of sense. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it had no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe, creatures would be stumbling around in the dark. Dark would have no meaning. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is they're saying there's evil in the world. And the only way they know that is because there is a God in the world. And yet they have no hope. And we are not to be there as Christians. We are to see that there is hope. So we see these declarations that this was evil, and we ask, how could this happen? Not how did it happen, you know, planning by terrorists, intelligence failings, whatever. But how is it that God could allow his image bearers to destroy other image bearers, innocent image bearers? Could God have stopped this? Couldn't he have snapped his fingers and made it go away? Couldn't he have said, nope, you can't do that? Why is he allowing genocide? Why has he tolerated holocausts? Why, why, why? And this leads us to the problem of evil. This is not a new problem. The problem of evil has been around from the very beginning. 
How can a good God allow evil to exist? This is the problem. Many people have left Christianity because of this problem, and others won't even give Christianity a try because of this problem. John Stott says, the fact of suffering and evil undoubtedly constitutes the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. And it has been for every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be random and unfair. Sensitive spirits ask, how can this work with God's justice and his love? So here is the problem of evil. First, we must understand what God is like. The first thing we see is that God is all-powerful and active. Psalm 93.1 says, the Lord reigns. He's established the world. It shall not be moved. The second thing we see is God is perfectly just and holy. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways, kind in all of his works. Third, God is infinitely, eternally good and loving. Psalm 106, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So put together, we see God is all-powerful and active. God is perfectly just and holy. And God is infinitely and eternally good and loving. Now, the problem here is, as you see all these three on the screen, is how do we make sense of where evil fits into this? If God is all-powerful and active, how can evil exist? Couldn't he just wipe it out? Why is it here? If God is all-perfect and just and holy, that seems to be the opposite of evil. Why is evil allowed to exist? And if God is good and loving and evil is meted out on his children, how is that good? How is that love? See, opponents of the Bible will say, oh yeah, these don't work, none of these work, and we're just gonna delete one of them, right? Maybe God's not all powerful. Maybe he's kinda, you know, sorta powerful. He's got a little bit, and he's like, oh, evil's too big, I can't deal with it. Or maybe he's, you know, maybe he's just kinda letting evil do its thing, and he's really not holy. You know, he's just kind of profane. He's kind of like the rest of us. Or worse, he's not good. He's malevolent. He's like the deities of the Romans and the Greeks, who when they're having a bad day, they take it out on their creations. The problem is, is that all three of these have to be there. They're all in the Bible. God is all-powerful. God is holy. And God is good. So how do we make sense of these? Can we delete one? Are we just left with, oh well, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven? The answer is a resounding and strong no. There is an answer. So I think to kind of get us in the mindset of what we need to be looking at this problem of evil, I want to read you guys a story from Randy Alcorn. There once was a teenager, I'll try to get through this, I'm sorry, who didn't want to be seen in public with her mom. Her mom's arms were terribly disfigured and mangled. One time it reached its peak. The young girl was at a grocery store, and the mom handed the clerk the money, and he recoiled in horror at her hands. The teen sprinted to the car, buried her head in her chair, and cried her eyes out in embarrassment. You see, mom had never told the teen how she had lost the use of her hands. The mom waited until that evening and sat the daughter down. Sitting on the edge of her bed, she said, 
When you were a baby, I woke up to a burning house. Your room was an inferno. There were flames everywhere. Now, I could have gotten out the front door, but I'd rather die with you in my arms than to let you die alone. I ran through the fire. I wrapped my arms around you. Then I went back through the flames, my arms on fire. When I got outside on the lawn, the pain was agonizing, but I looked down and praised the Lord the flames had not touched you. The girl sat stunned. When she opened her eyes, he looked at her mom with new eyes, crying in shame and gratitude. The girl began kissing her mom's arms and hands. When we look at the problem of evil, we have to look at it in, with new eyes. Because when we look at the problem of evil as is, it's just affecting me and there's not, my God is not involved in this, we miss what's going on here. May we learn to see the problem of evil and suffering through new eyes. I put Kleenex everywhere so you guys can grab Kleenexes if you need them. (laughs) See, the problem we have is that the problem of evil is a lack of understanding of who God is. We can put those three statements up there of what God is like. We can put those three statements up there, but that's just statements. It's not who God is. And so we need to focus and see the goodness of God and understand how the goodness of God is the only way to deal with evil. It is the only way. See, God is the author of our story. He's writing the story. We're in the midst of it, and it makes no sense to us. And this will lead us to doubts. Now, I want to say very clearly, doubting is not a sin, except when your doubts come from the fact you're sinning. You're sleeping with your boyfriend, and you're like, oh, I don't think God loves me. I have doubts. Well, yes, you're going to have doubts. You're immersing yourself in sin. But there are doubts that don't come from sin. There are doubts that come from disappointment. There's doubts that come from disorientation. Uh, Lord, I thought you had this in mind, and now it's not the way I planned it. My dreams are gone. It can also be deliberation as you've thought through things, and you're like, Lord, this makes no sense. These doubts are the ones that we are to take to the Lord and ask for help. I find that Psalm 34 helps us with some of these doubts. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, and those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. These are promises, and one of the things about God's word is it gives us promises, and they're based on God's character. They're based on who he is. And so these are meant to comfort us. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles, out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. These are sweet promises for us. And they're ones we need to internalize and make sure we understand. But if we're honest, 
No matter what we read on the written page, our doubts still linger. These doubts well up and they they lead to feelings of guilt and I go, I feel so guilty. I know God is good, but I don't feel it right now. When we hear of the pain of children, we doubt that he is good. When we have this guilt welling up in us that says, I shouldn't be feeling this, that doesn't mean we throw in the towel. We take the guilt to the only one who can solve our problem. This problem of God is all-powerful, God is just, and God is love, and I don't feel it. This is the problem he wants us to address. You know, we, we know the story of Job. Job's story is, is an intense one. Job starts off the story, he's a wealthy man, very wealthy man. He's wealthy not only in possessions, he's wealthy in prestige, and he's wealthy in children. I mean, he's got 10 of them. That's like a big Paideia family right there. <laughs> but at the beginning of the story, Job isn't privy to what's happening in heaven. And the Lord allows the devil to sift Job. And what happens is Job loses everything, and he gets done with that, and he goes, blessed is the Lord who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then it touches his body, and he suffers. His own wife says, curse God and die, Job. Job refuses no matter his uncertainty. Now, Job has questions, and there are lots of questions in the book of Job. And his friends come along, and they just make it worse. But Job makes this declaration. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job has so many questions. Why is this happening, Lord? But his faith goes against the grain. He knows his Lord his redeemer. It's important that we recognize not only is evil a problem, but if our view of evil leads to us thinking that God doesn't care, that's even worse. An indifferent God is not a God we want. A God that says, oh, you humans figure it out on your own. I'm too busy keeping the nebulas together. You guys figure it out. Instead, Like Alistair Begg says, no, what we discover is the Bible is straightforward, that one day evil will be disposed of. One day evil will be disposed of decisively, authoritatively, and unequivocally disposed of. So here, Job at the end of his story, he is vindicated. He doesn't get all of his questions answered, but God steps in, puts his friends in their place, and then says, Job, I vindicate you. Your Redeemer lives. This response of what we cling to, what do we cling to when we're in the dizzying whirlpool of evil and suffering known as planet Earth? What we cling to is the same thing that the Catechism says. What is our only hope in life and death that we do not, we belong to body and soul, both life and death, to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Romans 14, so whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. So what's the solution? How do we we get our minds around this idea that there are these terrible evils dished out by evil people and God stands back and looks like he's doing nothing? 
What do we do? Well, Job was right. We need to focus on our Redeemer. Job didn't know his name. He just called him the Redeemer. We know his name. His name is Jesus Christ. Not only that, we don't just know his name. We know how he redeems. And this is the miracle that holds all three of these truths together. God is all-powerful and active. Why? Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. God is perfectly just and holy because it is God who put forth Jesus as a propitiation. This was to show his righteousness because in his forbearance he passed over sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time as the just and justifier. And third, God is infinitely good and loving. He shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? The cross is the key. The gospel, you know, we talk about it all the time and we say, take the gospel with you. I say it almost every Sunday. It's not for today. Folks, the only way we get through the evil that is perpetrated on this planet is remembering what God did in the gospel, in the good news, because the cross is our rock. The world is sinking sand. We cling to the cross. We cling to it like the song we just sang. See, Christ is the most precious thing in existence. And God sacrificed Christ for us. Look at what he did. The cross proves that God is invested in this world. He's not an absentee landlord off doing his own thing. He is here. So Christ's death redeems our world. The cross proves that God takes injustice, inhumanity, and sin with the utmost seriousness. Why? He sent the most precious being in the universe to die to bring justice. Third, the cross proves that God is absolutely committed to loving sinful and rebellious people. Christ died for love. See, God's not sitting back and going, oh, evil's terrible. No, he said, I'm going to destroy evil by sending my son. We have to learn that in the darkness, when we have the doubts, we have to park those doubts. We have to go, no matter how real and valid those doubts are, we must park them and we must look to Jesus. We must look to the cross. See, here's the thing. God is the author of the story, but he's also a character in the story, right? We've seen this. God comes and speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, right? So he's a part of his own story that he's writing. That's like Shakespeare writing himself in and act, you know, actively being with his characters. But it gets better. He became flesh and blood in the story to redeem the story. He felt what we felt. He lived what we lived. He comes as our redeemer. This is not God going, I'm going to make some lemonade out of these lemons, this was his plan from the start. Jesus coming, Jesus living, Jesus dying, Jesus resurrecting. One writer says, the author of the story becoming not just a character, but a human character. In this story, God is the storyteller and the main character. He is the bard and he is the hero. And I love this. 
He authors a fairy tale, and then he steps in, kills the dragon, and gets the girl. Isn't that epic? This is what God did to evil. He steps into our fallen, nasty, perverted world, and he says, I'm going to destroy evil here and now. And I did it on the cross. God is not an absentee landlord. He's not aloof. He's not a non-emotional Spock-like God. No, he is the God who is born, who bleeds, who dies, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and who is reigning right now from the throne in heaven. So God comes down, draws all the sin and shame and rebellion and hate and sickness and death and swallows it whole. How does he do it? He allows death to swallow him. He takes all of it. And as he's doing it, the dragon of sin, death, and destruction is crushed in his head by the prince of peace. The evil Good Friday becomes ultimately good. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection point us to the fact that God is going to punish every single sin, even those who get away with it, right? How many monsters have we seen in, in human history who kill themselves so they don't have to face judgment? Oh boy, did they get it wrong. See, evil will be punished. Evil will be vanquished. For us who are in Christ, the most precious being, Jesus himself, was crushed for your sins. It took an infinite being coming down and being crushed to make amends with the sin. Those who are not in Christ, you know what happens to them? They go to hell where for eternity they will be crushed. And that's not even going to be long enough. So it's got to be eternity of eternities being crushed in hell because of their sin. So God takes sin very seriously. Evil will be dealt with, end, full stop. Evil loses and will continually lose throughout eternity. Because think about this. What was the most evil event in the history of the world? Was it the Holocaust? Was it the ethnic cleansing? Was it some other event that we know very little about? No, the most evil event in human history was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There has never been another event more devastating, more evil. And yet, Jesus went willingly. He went for those who would submit to him and say, I will follow you, Jesus. He went for those who said, I don't care, Jesus. I'm not going to follow you. And he went anyways. The perfect son of God. I find no better verse than the one that Joshua, Joseph said at the end of Genesis when his brothers think that he's going to take revenge on them for all the bad things that they did to him. And this is what he says. As for you, brothers, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Jesus' death was pure evil, but God meant it for good. Jesus' death brings evil out and it gets destroyed. So how does this relate to us? Evil is at our doorstep. Not a cheery sentiment, I know. But understanding that God loves us, he is good, he's all-powerful, he's just, and he is gonna take care of evil gives us the correct picture when evil is near. It gives us hope. 
Not blind hope, like I hope I get this. No, but this is hope in that Jesus is coming soon, and when he does, it is done. Evil is destroyed. Because reality says that if we have a God big enough to be mad at about something, he's a God big enough to have reasons that we don't understand. And the reason is, is that he is good. So let me give you an example how this fits for us. Let's say pain hits really home, close to home. Something happens badly to somebody you love. Say a brother, a brother dies. If God could and he came down and stood in front of you and you said, why did my brother have to die? He would say, you want the answer? I've written it down on this piece of paper for you. Now I need to warn you, it's complicated. There's a lot of advanced math and there's some dimensions you don't understand. There's people that you've never met and people who haven't been born yet, but this is the complete understanding of why this bad thing happened. Here you go. And I know for a fact, everybody in this room, if they just had lost a brother to some evil, horrendous act, no matter what's on that paper, you're gonna still go, why did he have to die? This doesn't change anything. See, here's the thing. When evil hits us, the pain is still there. So we together as a congregation need to be there for each other. And not like Job's brothers. You know, Pastor John said in the sermon that God always has a good reason, so therefore you should stop crying. That's not it. What we need to be is we need to be able to weep with those who are weeping and mourn with those who are mourning. And sometimes you just need to rub their back and sit with them. Because evil is going to hit this church body. The more and more we draw close to the Lord, the more and more we become a target. Evil is going to hit us. And we can only get through it together in loving and caring for each other. Which also means sometimes when somebody's hurting, they're going to say things that are borderline blasphemous. Let them say it. They're just, they, they, you know what? They're, they're grieving. You just need to be there, rubbing their back, providing their meals, and helping them out. Because a God like our God cares and is going to deal with it. So when tragedy arrives, we need to sit and cry. We need to sit and care. We need to be there with those who are grieving. The God in Scripture, the God that we serve, is the only source of goodness. He's the one we need to draw to and know that all things will be made right in the end. Evil does not have the final say. Jesus does not stay dead on the worst day in history. He rose from the grave on the best day in history, followed closely by the next best day when he ascended to heaven, where he sits right now with his enemies under his feet. And he promises, I am going to subdue them by destroying them. And evil is at the top of the list. Jesus, the divine author, who never did evil himself, but instead conquers evil by enduring evil, delivers all of us who are oppressed by evil into his family. This is where our hope has to be. How do we deal with the evil in the world? How does God allow it? Why does he allow it? I don't know all the answers. He's gonna use it for good, and he is going to wipe it out. There is no getting away with it, and it's still gonna hurt. Doesn't make the evil any less evil but it makes the God who sent his son 
to deal with the evil that much more beautiful. Let's worship and praise that God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your justice and your divinely righteous wrath. Lord, there are going to be evil things that are going to happen. And Lord, we pray that you would not use evil things to bring about good in our lives. But when those things happen, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you because we've seen what you've been willing to do for us on the cross. How you swallowed up death and evil and sin and suffering through your son's death and suffering. Help us not to miss that. Help us to see things rightly through the cross. Where we love you, help us where we doubt, help us when we have unbelief, and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.